listening to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to Hotel Bar Podcasts. I'm one of your hosts, Rick Lee, and I'm joined as usual by our other hosts, Charles Peterson and Lee Johnson. What's up? Hey, what's going on? I just raised my thumbs as if the listeners can see that. <laughs> <laughs> they, they feel it, Charles. They feel it. There you go. Feel it. <laughs> as usual, we're going to start out with our drink orders and our rants and raves. And so, Lee, what are you drinking and what are you ranting about? So today I am going to have a Fireball and Diet Coke. You guys, that is my normal, usual drink. Go ahead and make fun if you want, but it is delicious. <laughs> A fireball. Uh, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> but my rant this week is vaccine hesitation. I mean, come on, people. I'm living in Tennessee. Our vaccination rates are around 30%. This despite the fact that Uncle Joe told us at least 70% of us needed to be vaccinated by July 4th. We're not even close here in Tennessee. I don't get the hesitation. I'm tired of trying to understand it. That's my rant for this week. My rave is Fresca. Fresca is a soda (laughs) that is the perfect summer drink. But you you have to be over 50 to remember Fresca. No, but you can 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 still buy Fresca. Yes, it was of the tab era. Are you buying it on eBay? No, I'm buying it in my grocery store. I'm buying it in my grocery store. But I will also say that if you add a little tequila to it, which I call a fresquila, it is the perfect summer drink. No sugar, refreshing. Everybody go out and buy you some Fresca. Okay. Oh, well, you know, I'm going to continue with that perfect summer drinks. I'm going to need a Tito's and soda with a twist of lime if we're going to talk about refreshing summer drinks. You know, the Tito's and soda is kind of what I drink when I don't feel like drinking, but I'm drinking. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not a commitment to drinking. It's just kind of absorbing a liquid. Right. <laughs> With alcohol. <laughs> With alcohol. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's the kind of drink that you start drinking around two and you don't feel bad about yourself. <laughs> so my rant this week is humidity. Yeah. I'm excited about the summer. I'm glad the sun's out. No more hiding in our caves. But man, I don't need to be sweating for no rhyme or reason. If I'm, act- yeah. if I'm active and I'm sweating, that makes sense. But me sweating just because I'm breathing? That shit's not fair. <laughs> yeah, and your body's, it's just, you know, I don't want to go into the details. So my rant is humidity. Can't stand it. My rave is bike riding. Yeah, yeah, I need nice. to get some exercise and I've been going out on my bike and trying to do like, you know, five or six miles. And, you know, you got that wind in your hair. It's like you're riding a horse across the steps of Asia Minor. And you just feel strong with that iron horse between your thighs. Got a little Tito and soda got, right there. You know, just kind of mix it in, you know. <laughs> The Mongols drink like horse blood. I drink Tito's and soda. So that's my rave bike riding. What about you, Rick? What's your drink and what's your rent rate? So I'm gonna st- I'm staying with the summertime, and because I think I might have some drinking to do later, I'm drinking a, a Kolsch right now. It's a nice light beer, nice mm. style of beer. It's what I call a lawn mowing beer. Um, you, you, <laughs> you, you sit it right out there with you when you're mowing the lawn, and and it, it it's just excellent. So my rave is, and this may get us off track for a little bit, but I'm going to rave about Kimberly Crenshaw. 
And I'm going to rave about Kimberly Crenshaw because I am sick and tired of hearing every single fucking day about critical race theory that has nothing to do with critical race theory. Now, I could have mentioned Derek Bell or Richard Delgado, Patricia Williams, but I'm going to call her out because intersectionality. That's a a concept we're all working with. I mean, she brought it to our awareness. And so I'm going to call her out. That's critical race, people. Look into it. And my rant is death. So my dad died in January and we're selling his house and we had to go and clean it out. And like people clean your shit up before you die because someone's going <laughs> to someone's going to have to do it. Someone's going to have to do it and it's probably going to be your children. And they're going to podcast about it and everyone's going to know. So, so you're saying before you die, erase the search history of your life. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, and your real meat space shit. <laughs> okay. All right. So today, Charles is in the hot seat. So Charles, let's start with you. What are we talking about today? We are talking about citizenship and hopefully starting off from the broadest possible way of thinking about it and then getting into some of the details of it. But citizenship has been something I've been thinking about for the past, I guess, four or five years, really after the, I'm outside of Cleveland in Oberlin, Ohio. So after the Tamir Rice murder, I'm going to say it, and certainly after the Trayvon Martin killing, I began to think very seriously about what are the structures, what are the relationships, what are the obligations that populations have to the governing apparatus of their society, the state, whether it be in the form of the police or whether it be in the form of the elected officials, whether it be in the form of elected representatives in D.C. Because what I saw, and certainly in the pattern, and we've talked about Black Lives Matter, we talked about it in the first episode, but uh, thinking about what are the conditions that have driven millions of people into the streets of America? What are the questions they're asking about the failure of their government? And what does that say about how do we think about what that relationship between individuals and between communities to the state, what should that be? So I just said, okay, this all boils down to citizenship. My, my work has been on this, some writing on this. And I mean, it's been troubling my mind for so long. So let's talk about citizenship. So how would you describe the civic disposition of the people you were just talking about, of the people who over the last several years have taken to the streets? How would you describe their own self-understanding of their citizenship? Well, I think what has really got me thinking about this and what really troubles me is that the people in the streets, the people who are protesting, have an amazingly maybe critical view of the reality of citizenship, but have a very optimistic idealistic idea of what citizenship should be, right? Mm -hmm. I think moving into the streets shows an amazing investment in what the society can be, shows an amazing investment in terms of trying to get the apparatuses of power to live up to the rhetoric of these questions of, of democracy and freedom and what it means to be a citizen in this type of state. I think about King's idea of civil disobedience, looking at letter from a Birmingham jail. And that idea of civil disobedience is an amazing investment in the workings of the state. It's actually an aspirational and it has a high expectation for what the state can do. And so a Kingian civil disobedience has this idea that the state can operate at a higher level. I want it to operate at a higher level and I'm willing to challenge and make sacrifices in order to better the state. So I think that's the disposition of many of the activists from the Black Lives Matter movement and the attendant movements. Yeah, and what's interesting about that, Charles, is that you're pointing out, and I never really thought of it in this direction, that there's, on the one hand, a complaint, and so we're in the street 
because we're complaining. But you just emphasized something that I would call like citizenship as aspirational category or something like that. And I, I think that's a really interesting side of citizenship to think about. You know, if we think about this in terms of like social contract theory and there are these obligations within the historical fantasies, right? Because there's always a mythical place that these ideas of, of social contract come out of. There's always this historical moment where you have these individuals functioning within some space and they decide to come together and they have inherent rights and we're going to give these powers to the state and say, hey, you use these powers to take care of us and to do X, Y, and Z. And in sort of a contractual sort of agreement, we will be obligated to what the state demands of us. To lesser or greater degree, sometimes they're very extreme, right? If you're talking sort of like a Hobbes, sometimes they're very loose, if you think about other writers. And so I had to ask questions about, well, you know, uh, is it just that? Is it just the state will protect you from a foreign menace if you make sure that you stop at the red light? Or is there more to what it means to be a citizen? So I think the question that you're asking about sort of citizenship as a verb and not just as a noun or a state is a huge question. And that's what gets demonstrated when we begin to think about civil disobedience and, and protest. Yeah, I think that in the classic social contract story that what citizenship bestows on you is a certain set of privileges and also a certain set of responsibilities. I think what concerns me now is that it's almost entirely been reduced to the privileges. I don't think that we have the culture. I mean, you can just look at, for example, the percentage of people who actually vote, which is extremely low. But we don't really have the concomitant sense of our civic disposition being one, you know, that I have responsibilities both to the state, but also to the citizenry. It's just about who has been chosen as a legitimate legible member of the society and who isn't. I don't know how it works if it's only about privilege. And not obligation, right? I think about those societies, I think, is it New Zealand or Australia? I'm not sure which, and I hope, I hope one of our you know listeners sort of corrects me if I'm wrong. But in one of those countries, right, you're obligated to vote. You have to vote. It's not a choice. And I think you receive a fine if you don't show up on election day or something. And I don't really think that that is an out-of-control demand. I don't think that's a, an improper rule or law to have. I mean, I think about all the other things that we're obligated to do. If there's a war and there is uh, conscription, then you are obligated to go off and fight. We're obligated to pay taxes, right? Because the belief is these are the things that help the, the society, the government, continue to function in a way to serve its job and serve its purposes to the citizen. So why shouldn't voting, why shouldn't a certain type of active political life be a part of those obligations? I think that's a really good contrast because we might say, well, as citizens, we're granted the privileges of citizenship, but we have an obligation, a responsibility, for example, to follow the law or to pay taxes. But I think that when people think about their obligation to follow the law or their obligation to pay taxes, they don't think about those as responsibilities that they're autonomously taking on. They think about them as coercive exercises of power by the state. Which is why it's interesting because we're not coerced to vote and we just don't vote. Right. And, and they suppress us more, which is really amazing. You already have a fairly disengaged voting population and there's a demand for a greater level of disengagement. Right. So the obligation thing is interesting because it seems to me one of the problems we're facing in the U.S. right now is that citizenship is thought almost exclusively in terms of a relationship to the government. 
And I, th- I think that, I, I mean, I'd like to think about the fact that I'm obligated to you all because I get benefits from living here together with you all. Even before we get to the government level or the question of government, there's a, a certain kind of benefit I accrue with being with you all. And, and therefore, I think I'm obligated to you all, even outside of governmental structures. Well, I mean, and, and I don't want to turn this into, you know, intro to political philosophy. Right? <laughs> but it's a question of our basic understanding of citizenship and our basic understanding of the social contract. Are those explicit? Does say the founding documents of the United States Does the Declaration of Independence talk about the relationship between individual to individual and then to state, right? Does the Constitution explicitly articulate a relationship between individuals within the society and then to the government? How does citizenship, how does it work citizen to citizen? What are my obligations to you? What are the things that I can do as a citizen that have a positive impact upon the life of the person standing next to me? And I think that we have to distinguish that from what I think Rick was describing earlier, which was friendship. He's living in this space with us and he feels certain obligations to us and presumably also feels the tremendous privilege of being friends with us. Right. But that is you feel the but, love, Rick. <laughs> and and that friendship is not mediated by some power that is other than the people who are in the friendships, right? Whereas our relationship to one another as citizens is mediated in the 21st century still, unfortunately, by nation state, primarily. Let me, let me just insert here because, like, I am the opposite of a communitarian. I, I think communitarianism just means we don't do that here. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there are even impersonal relations I have to others that I think incur in me obligations. So just to give an example, like I don't grow my food. I I don't even bring it here. I, I mean, I bring it from the grocery store, but like, how the hell did it get there? So I don't have a personal relationship. I want to go on record as saying with my grocer. But I do have a relationship that I think incurs obligations. Like, I'm, don't steal from the store. Behave well. And these days, I'm going to wear a mask. If they ask me to wear a mask, I'm wearing a mask because they're the one who brought the food. So I, I think friendship is something different than what I was talking about. So are you talking about a certain sort of relationship that may be, in a sense, devoid of any emotional... I don't, I don't say that in sort of a cruel way, Right. right? But is is there a care or form of care that does not rely upon intimate subjective emotions? I like that last formulation. I really like. Yeah, a, f- a form of care that doesn't entail that I even know anything about you, and therefore I don't have subjective emotions in, in relation to you, and yet I have an obligation. Yeah, but isn't that obligation fundamentally the obligation between you and your grower and the people who transport the food, et cetera, isn't that obligation fundamentally an economic relationship at some very base level? I I suppose what I'm trying to get to is what is the difference between the kinds of obligations and privileges we have in our interpersonal relationships that are actually personal, 
like friendship. What is the difference between that and the way that I think about you as fellow citizens or any other people as fellow citizens? And it seems to me that what you're describing is a whole other order of relationships, which has to do with economics, right? That we're all working together because we have needs that are going to be met. There's a certain commercial structure, economic structure that has to be set up in order for those things to function smoothly. And so I'm going to enjoy the privileges of not having to grow up all of my own food and transport it. But I also feel obligations to other people who are operating in that economy because they're doing work as well. I wonder if your relationship to your grocer is analogous to your relationship to a fellow citizen. Can I just remind you all that I'm not in the hot seat this week? No, <laughs> it's a captain's seat. It's a captain's. I think I think Lee has a great point, but I want to ask. So, should there be a qualitative difference between sort of this emotion-based relationship, friend to friend, or let's say let's call the citizen a friend when it's an emotional connection, a subjective right entanglement? versus the objective stranger who's still a fellow citizen. Because if we think about going back to this idea of citizen and what the citizen does, the citizen's behavior toward other citizens is about maintaining the proper order and functioning of society. So I don't kill my fellow citizen because that can be terribly disruptive, not just to the life of the citizen, but it can be terribly disruptive to the citizen's family if they're the sole breadwinner, or it can be terribly disruptive to their social community if they're the minister in their church, right? So proper ordering, proper functioning of the society is that citizen care. Should we separate that from this emotional entanglement of friendship for citizen to citizen, right? I mean, what would distinguish the two? And this is a question for Lena. What would distinguish the two? I think that's a great question. I think... It is important that my relationship to my fellow citizens do not require a positive personal friendship between us. So, for example, my relationship to anonymous fellow citizens is different than friends in the sense that it's not personal. I don't have all of the emotional, affective attachments to that relationship. But it's also not purely economic, like purely utilitarian. So I can call on a fellow citizen who I do not know, I don't have any personal relationship with, to do things for me or I'll do things for them. As a fellow citizen, that's not entirely about utility. For example, I can call on them to sit on a jury and execute the law in a case that involves me, or I can do that for them. So I do think that there is something different about this relationship. It's different from economic relationships, and it's different from, obviously, personal, emotional relationships. I suppose what I want to ask you, Charles, is how dependent is whatever citizenship is on being mediated specifically by a nation state? So this question takes me back to the idea of the history of the citizen, the rise of this category, because this is a fairly recent historical category, right? Prior to this, people were rarely citizens because we rarely have forms of representative or Republican or Democratic government that we have now. So, you know, maybe you have a citizen in ancient Greece, you have a citizen in, in Rome before it became an empire. So it's a fairly new sort of thing. So my question is always, how did this new category transform the person within a society? Is this a different lens by which they operate within the context of relationships to other individuals and relationships to the structures of power? And I think that speaks to what you're saying. I'm not answering it completely, but it sparks another question in my mind. Rick, is this where we get the roles? 
No, no, no. <laughs> you, you no one comes to Rick Lee for Rawls. Um, although we do come to him for fancy veils. Right. That's right. I, I love me a veil. For those of you who are listening, I'm wearing one now. Um, <laughs> it is definitely a veil of ignorance. <laughs> Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. We're there often to solicit listeners' feedback on past episodes and contributions for upcoming episodes. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email the audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. It seems to me like there are two different sorts of approaches to citizenship. And let me get at my question in this way. So the Constitution of the United States, which you referred to earlier, and also the Declaration of Independence, refers to the people. So that it seems prior in some sense of prior, not temporally prior, but prior to the formation of the government, there is this people who are already related in some way. In a sense, the people, are they already citizens? And, and that seems like one model. And then, and maybe it's the same, I'm not sure. But as we're talking, I'm struck by the fact that the way strangers would address one another in the French Revolution was citizen. I mean, even when there was no government, they were referring to one another as citizen. And there it seems like you are a citizen because you're with me in this project of building whatever it is we're going to build. And so I'm, I'm just wondering about this, even if we leave the government aside, it seems like there is some kind of citizenship before citizenship. It goes back to my question about this category of the citizen. What does it bestow upon the person, right? So, hey, I'm a citizen and there's a citizenship before the rise of a government. So that means that there's a criteria by which one is a citizen independent of a government determining one's legal status. So does that now mean, and if, you know, we think about the historical transition from subjects to citizens, from monarchies to republics, does that mean that you no longer think about me as somebody whose importance or value or relationship is mediated by a belief in a supreme being? or an autocratic representative of a supreme being? Or does that mean that now I understand and I recognize you through your ability to wield reason, your inherent gift of rights, your ability to have agency and empowerment and control over one's lives? So is that what a citizen is outside of a governmental? So is, does the citizen reconstruct you even at an ontological level? Are you a new being in this formulation if you're a citizen? I want to push back. I'm not sure that citizen does make sense outside of a reference to a real or imagined state. 
So even if in the midst of a revolution, I'm I'm like, come, come to the front lines with me, fellow citizens. Right. <laughs> I am imagining you in that case as a part of the citizenry of a state that we're trying to build. But it's only in reference to that imagined state that the term citizen makes sense. I'm not sure that there is a stateless citizen. I mean, that seems to me the one absolutely true, like tautological thing that we can say <laughs> is that is that there is no stateless citizen. Right. But Rick said in Casablanca that he was a citizen of the world. Okay. Well, that actually. Okay. So I'm okay. So you, I was trying. I was trying to play the long game here. But let me just go ahead. Let me just go ahead and. Get, when you go Bogart, you never go back. Let me just go ahead and get, and get and get to what I really wanted to ask, which is this. So I think that we have a real crisis of citizenship right now, and I think it has to do with the increasing irrelevance of the nation state. Not only the ineffectiveness of the nation state, but the irrelevance of it, and so. Over the last 50 years, we've seen more and more people not only start to think, but start to act with a sense of global citizenship or transnational citizenship. There are also more and more stateless people. There are more and more refugees. There are more and more immigrants. And there are good reasons to say, actually, the the sense of relationship to the citizenry that I feel is not effectively articulated in reference to a single nation state. Without a doubt, I think, and and shout out to Habermas, I think there is a crisis of legitimacy for governmental apparatuses because the nation state is transforming in certain ways, the rise of a certain corporate oligarchy, this global elite, these stateless oligarchs. But I think there's also, and this goes back to my original point about how this murder of black and brown people in the streets of America by police forces got me thinking about the crisis of legitimacy of governments, of, of governing apparatuses, and how they begin to, to fail and break down in their relationship to, and their obligation to the citizenry. Because I'm tr- also trying to think about how far do we take that? Is it more than just the meat and potatoes of defense against a foreign enemy? What else should a state be doing? Should it be providing certain opportunities and certain benefits and certain privileges along with the obligations that citizens have for the state? So this actually takes me back to my original moment of being troubled in terms of thinking about this category. I'm an historian of philosophy, and so I always have to take it back. There's, to my mind, a major difference between Hobbes and Kant in that for Hobbes, It's never as if each nation state is seen as a citizen among all of the nation states together. Whereas Kant's model, you know, this is the cosmopolitan, which really means like world citizen. Kant's position is, let's build a model of the world that is based on the relationship of the individual to the state, and now that state has a relationship of an individual to the world. I just think about, for example, the catastrophe that's going on at the southern border of the U.S. right now. On the one hand, this is because of a failure of a nation state south of our border, We could keep going back, and that's because of a failure of our own nation state. And and so, like, we caused this problem. But there's been a failure there. If the U.S. were a citizen in a world government or a world body, then there would be a felt obligation to peoples whose own states have failed them. 
And and then I think of a second example, and that is the example of the Roma in Europe. A huge percentage of them are called Romanian, but they don't consider themselves Romanian. They consider themselves Roma, but you can't have a Roma passport. You can't join the Roma army. You don't pay your Roma taxes. I think, Lee, you're exactly right that there is a crisis of the city-state, and if there is no global citizenship, then it seems like those crises turn into catastrophes. If the structures of a particular state fail those who see themselves as citizens and they spill over, then it becomes disruptive to this other society, which may be having the same sort of concerns and bedevilments as the original society. Yeah, yeah, right. Just to get back to Charles's point about the failure of the state to citizens that it recognizes as citizens. So if I am the mother of Tamir Rice or the wife of Flando Castile or whomever, I am saying to the government, I want the justice that I am owed. And I want it in the way that a citizen is owed it. And that is a crisis that we have been having and continue to have in the United States right now, which is that we continue to treat a significant portion of our citizens as sub-citizens. That seems to me, though, a different kind of crisis than what is increasingly the case, which is that we realize that although there is no super state, there is no cosmopolitan state, that we are in fact in our real lives all global citizens. And so it matters what other nation states are doing with the vaccine or what other nation states are doing with border regulations or what other states are doing with climate change, etc. But there's no one to appeal to as a global citizen. So I feel like I'm walking back to my earlier point because I said there's no meaning to citizen without a state. But here it's an imagined state. It's the imagined cosmopolitan global citizenry that we're appealing to. We unfortunately can't make any demands as global citizens. That's part of the challenge. That's part of the problematic is that the immediate body of accountability is that particular government of the territory in which you have legal status and protection and obligation. For me, this is really challenging because the crises of legitimacy that you mentioned in terms of the death of these figures and so many more whose names, unfortunately, we may never know, is not a new thing. And part of what I have been thinking about and, and what I've been troubled by is the fact that what we're looking at are not these moments of governmental mistake or governmental overreach, but one can very easily begin to establish a, a, a serious pattern of, of regular disparate treatment and relationships between one population, one community, and other communities to the government. We have to look at the foundation within African slavery. We have to look at 100 years of Jim Crow, and we have to look at contemporary forms of, hey, critical race theory, the various types of policy-driven disparities between these populations. And and that's what I'm trying to get to. I want to move beyond these exceptional problems or moments that can be fixed and addressed. Is Derek Chauvin being tried and sentenced? Is that the answer to the problem of policing of brown and black communities in Minneapolis? Or do we have to think about something deeper and something longer? How long has this been going on? And at a certain point, how do we recognize it not as a bug, not even as a feature, but as the system itself? And then what does this particular group of citizens do in the face of that knowledge? Hey listeners, we're virtually toasting you here at the hotel bar. But since we can't put our next drink on your tab, we figure the least you can do is follow this podcast on Twitter, at Hotel Bar Podcast. 
You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. Charles is at CF Peterson. That's at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is spelled with an O. Rick is at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor is abbreviated DR and Lee is spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, on the off chance that you weren't just furiously scribbling notes while I said that, you can visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know about how to follow and listen to us there. Now, back to our conversation. It seems to be built into the model, or at least the ideal model of democracy, that citizens have a right to call the state on its failure to live up to its promises. But it's not built into that ideal of democracy that non-citizens have a right to call on some state for not fulfilling its promises to its citizens. And it's not even really clear that citizens have a right to call for that same attention to non-citizens. This is the problem that we're in right now at the southern border. What we're really talking about is international law, human rights law which holds states' governmental apparatuses accountable for the care, the support of those who may not have a particular legal status within their societies. As you have to remind Republicans, it's not illegal for citizens from other countries to come and to claim refugee status. Refugee status. Like you have asylum. Asylum, right? You yeah. have to open up your doors. That's accepted. That's actually part of American law by having signed on to certain type of international treaties and covenants. There is an overarching structure that addresses the status of a non-citizen within a particular political sort of realm. Except for that it relies on nation states. Right. It, 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 re- it relies upon nation states. To honor their promises, right? To support the contract that they've signed on to, right? Ironically so. But I want to go back to the thing, and this is something that I think about you said that even oppressed citizens are citizens. And I always think about H. Rap Brown saying, there's no such thing as a second-class citizen. You're the slave or you're free. Right, and, right. you know, I, I think it's a bit more complex than that as much as I respect H. Rap Brown because there's still certain rights that even oppressed communities, marginalized communities within the society may have. Yes, you'll go to jail if you do certain things. Yes, you may be subject to certain types of oppression, but you're not going to get exported. No one's going to you know, toss you out of the country. Even if the judicial system is, is biased against you, you still even nominally face a judge and deal with even a biased jury. So there's still the empty performance of citizenship rights. My biggest concern are, once again, the disparity between even this empty performance of citizenship and what real invested authentic citizenship looks like. At what point does that marginalized citizen begin to think beyond functioning or continue to function or continue to realize a real vested and authentic equal citizenship? How long do you pursue that? This idea that I, I think about of materiality, I mean, we can actually think about citizenship beyond sort of abstract rhetorical promises. We can think about it in very real ways. So how do we determine levels and engagements and a realization of citizenship? We can look at policy. We can look at data. We can look at the relationship of certain communities to the criminal justice system. We can look at access to health care. We can look at the housing policy compared to members of the dominant group within the society. We can put a quantitative fixture and understanding and interpretation of citizenship, but at a certain point, that disparity and the continuation of that disparity, the longevity of that disparity, the normality of that disparity, forces one to rethink the entire relationship. 
and mm-hmm. not in a Kingian way where civil disobedience will have the society realize itself. Mm-hmm. Like if I hear the term the promise of America one more time, I'm going to throw up because it's somebody who's throwing icing on top of this really terrible cake. Thanks, Obama. Oh, yeah, thanks. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what I'm fixated on. You know, is there something beyond citizenship? So, Charles, this beyond citizenship, you raised as a kind of example of how citizenship might be defined, is a document like the Declaration of Independence. And what I'm always shocked about in discussions of the Declaration of Independence, which, of course, has no legal status in, in the U.S., but... That document is based on the fact that there is a right, to whom does it attach, the people, what, whatever, there is a right to throw off the shackles of the government when it no longer acts in the interests of the people. And so I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, who is the subject there who's engaged in the action of throwing off the shackles of a government not acting in their interest? Is that a citizen? Within the Declaration of Independence? I I mean, so let's say we decide, hey, the U.S. government is no longer acting in our interests. Let's throw off its shackles. Then what is my status? What is our status when we decide that and start acting on the basis of it? I mean, if we go back to Lee's point that the citizen only exists within the context of a relationship to the state, going back to the social contract. Yeah, once you break that social contract, you're this new type of being. You've placed yourself consciously outside of the parameters of the governing body. I think there is a word for what they were to each other. They were comrades. And I think that is why I I really am starting to think more and more these days. And I'm wondering, Charles, if you would be sympathetic to this, that given the crisis of citizenship that our increasingly globalized lives are presenting both for us as individuals and also for our relationship to nation states, that citizenship, fellow citizens, is not how we should think about each other. We need to start thinking about each other as comrades because then we're attaching ourselves to particular projects that do not respect borders, are not bound by borders. So we create, and maybe the word we were looking for earlier in terms of thinking about connections of care with friends versus questions of care to citizens, maybe the word we're looking for was affinity. So we're talking about bonds of affinity with this idea of the comrade, right? It's no longer subject to the stricture of the state, and it's really stepped outside of the social contract. And it's not friendship either. Like, I don't have to be friends with people who I consider comrades. Right. You know, I don't have to like them. Right. And they don't have to necessarily, I don't have to have an economic relationship with them. I have to have a shared ideal, it seems. So is that ideal just an ideal, or is it a shared goal? Is it a project? I think it's a project also. That's fair. Yeah. So it's a work buddy. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a buddy, though. It doesn't have to be a buddy, right? Like, it's, but, but, someone, it's someone who's working on the same job I'm working but, on. But, but you're still a co-worker, right? And, yeah. I mean, I guess there's a positive... Uh, but not in an economic sense of worker. Right. So I, I was just going to say that there's a line that Du Bois has... Um, that he, he's, how, how does it go? Co-worker I, in the kingdom exactly, of culture. Exactly, exactly. I want to be a co-worker in the kingdom of culture. That's a kind of co-worker that it's, that he's not there talking about, I want to get paid. Although, sure, there's a different form of work there. I think that's important because if part of my work and part of my thinking is moving beyond a certain type of citizenship, engaging and nullifying. And there's where it gets tricky and I'm always trying to be careful because I don't want to come off sounding like one of these sovereign citizen people. Mm. 
Right. I don't have to give you my license. I mean, you know, I mean, seriously. Hey, we are not going to tread on you. <laughs> Wait, um, is Charles building an island offshore somewhere? Shh. <laughs> Live from the bunker, it's Charles. <laughs> You know, but there is a very real question of how do we begin to define ourselves? How do we begin to create communities? How do we begin to understand the limits of continuing to engage within this relationship? And maybe I'm speaking out of a, of a particular sense of despair mm. at this moment in history. Mm. And the despair is not the uniqueness of the moment of history. It's actually about recognizing the commonality of this moment of history. I completely agree. I, I share in that despair. I think that I am ready to give up on the use value of nation states. But it sounds like you still have an affection for citizenship in a way that like, I mean, I'm listening to you talk and I can hear the despair in your articulation of how enlightenment notions of citizenship have broken down. But it doesn't seem like you want to give up on it yet. No, no. I'm, well, my despair is for the historical moment and for the continuation, the ongoing history of this moment. But also my despair is that this investment in citizenship remains the dominant ethic or the dominant intentionality yeah, of, yeah. of, of, of African-American politics. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's really what troubles me. And so, you know, I feel bad because it sounds like I'm, I'm like hawking my damn book. But what I took time to think about are the ways in which what activists or what ideologies or what philosophies have sought to, in a sense, move beyond this particular classical notion of citizenship and attempt to redefine it or reject it or adjust it and not to accept it. And it just seems that we've so accepted certain figures, leadership figures, thanks Obama, have completely accepted <laughs> this classical notion of citizenship, despite the obvious detrimental effect it has upon the community. And the way that it gets folded into larger cultural movements like what often gets called respectability politics yeah, right, and right. those sorts of things. Or this is the story of America. Right, right. right. And, and I guess there is a nobility about it, this attempt to realize a, a community's relationship within a larger society and achieve certain goals and to reach a certain level of equality. And, you know, it's great, but it's Sisyphean. To go back to, to my fundamental Marxism, so... You know, one of the main issues at the Second International is, is it just revolution or nothing? Or if people are hurting and struggling, could we like make their lives better while we're working toward the revolution? And so I wonder if in Lee's question there, there wasn't a bit about that. Like, sure, I'm done with the nation state, too. But guess what? It's not going anywhere for a while. And secondly, dying animals can be really dangerous as they're in their death throes. Right. And this is what I worried about during the Trump presidency is that we're seeing the danger of a dying animal. And I wonder then, in, in terms of, Charles, what you were just talking about, that African-American politics is linked to this notion of citizenship. And that needs to be overturned, overcome, transformed, and so on. Or I'll say the dominant movements, the dominant yes. strains. Yes, right? that's right. Because you do have exceptions, alternatives. You have different figures and movements over the course of time that have been like, eh, I don't think so. Sure, sure. But granted that the nation state's not going away tomorrow, and granted that the notion of citizenship is not going away tomorrow, do we just say, look, it's either revolution or nothing? Or is the link of a certain dominant strain of African-American politics to the concept of citizenship a kind of amelioration move? Like in the meanwhile, 
this is where we can make some headway. I want to say that I think it is important in the meanwhile to keep working on changing the laws, electing different people, calling attention to injustice where it exists and insisting that it be rectified. I think that absolutely is important. However, I do think that we have an example in all of our recent memories of an option that is not revolution or business as usual. And I think that's what we saw in the Me Too movement. We see this option where it's like, injustices are being done and we're not getting to go to court and get justice right, for them. Right. And we're not going to overthrow the government, right? We're not going to all stop paying our taxes. But what we are going to do is we're going to take to a different court, the court of public opinion, the court of the global citizenry, the court of decent people everywhere. Now, we still need to change laws. We still want people to have to stand before the law and give an account of themselves or be accountable for themselves. But in the meantime, there are a lot of other things that we can be doing that are not sit down and be a good citizen. And to me, that's a question of pragmatism. So I think for me, I still vote. I still contribute to various political campaigns. You know, I... I, And you've been an elected official. And I was an elected official for 10 years. So I agree with that. But to me, and I, I wonder if I'm just parsing, but it seems to me there's a question of, is participation within these systems pragmatic or idealistic? And I think idealistic is where I find the problem. Oh, yeah. Versus pragmatic, right? Okay, this is where we are right now. I'm in a foxhole. Whatever tool is at hand, I'm going to use it. But I still have a larger goal. I'm trying to to get out of the foxhole, ultimately. But we, we have to continue to make use of whatever mechanisms are available at the moment. So let me ask you a really direct question. Like, put your feet to the fire on the pragmatism versus idealism thing. Do you think that Derek Chauvin should go to jail? Yes, for a very long time. So this is, of course, recognizing all the problems with the carceral state and that incarceration has no reformative capacity at all and that we're not changing the police. We're actually reinforcing the whole structure of arresting and punishing with incarceration. Sure, I hear what you're saying. And yeah, you, I, like you can see here where that, that's no, where I completely the tension know where you're is, going. right? Um, yeah. But then Derek Chauvin not going to jail doesn't even transform Derek Chauvin. Correct, yeah. Right? So... Yeah. There has to be some accountability. Unfortunately, that accountability is taking place to an extremely flawed mechanism. Now, what one could argue is, fundamentally, it's not flawed in terms of its operation towards someone like Derek Chauvin, right? Who it is flawed toward are poor whites and black and brown populations. That's where it's flawed. So who knows? Maybe the true real functioning of the criminal justice system is showing itself in Derek Chauvin's imprisonment. Yeah, but I hear what you're saying. I mean, I'm wrestling with the question of abolition. It's a big idea, right? And how do you be critical of this institution, of this process, of this predatory sort of engagement, but at the same time say, but yeah, George Floyd was murdered. And there must be some way by which to hold Derek Chauvin accountable for this man's death. So, Charles, is your point there something like, as a society... And this goes back to a point you made way at the beginning of of our conversation. I I don't rob your house. I don't murder your family members and so on. And when someone does, in our contemporary language, the way we say wrong is prison. I can't now start speaking a different language because otherwise I'm not naming and marking the injustice that occurred. And I understand that... We could be speaking a different language. We should be speaking a a different language. 
but I'm not going to let this go unmarked just because we don't have the proper language to mark it. Right. Yeah, that sounds exactly like what I'm saying. And it goes back to the question of what do you do in the meantime? Mm. What are the tools at hand? And unfortunately, the tools at hand in order to recognize the wrong that was done to George Floyd and to his friends, his family, his community is a very deeply flawed criminal justice system. Once every episode, as a public service to hotel bar sessions, regular listeners, your HBS hosts offer a quick fire segment of random facts that you can use to spice up your future cocktail party conversations. Today's random fact, there is an average of 50,000 spiders per acre in green areas. Marinate on that as you walk through the park. Random fact, high school freshmen are younger than Facebook. Oof. A random fact, some house finches from around the Great Lakes migrate to the south for the winter, just like the elderly people. So Charles, I know you have this book coming out really soon that's called Beyond Civil Disobedience, Social Nullification, and Black Citizenship. And I have two questions just about the title. What do you mean by social nullification? That's the first question. And then the second question is, do you have a sense that black citizenship is a different category of citizenship than white citizenship, Latino citizenship, women's citizenship, LGBTQ citizenship, et cetera? To answer the first question, social nullification, which is really the operating idea within the book, is the process by which a state fails in its obligations to its citizens, so it nullifies the social contract. But at the same time, it is also the process by which citizens who've been marginalized and who have not experienced or been allowed to experience equal citizenship begin to make choices, redefine, reassess, resist their role or their social obligation to the state. So it's working in both ways. The state fails and also the citizens make a choice of agency in terms of rethinking what their relationship to the government may mean. Yeah, yeah. Now, I think going back to the question of black citizenship, I mean, to me, that goes back to the question that Charles Mills talks about in Racial Contract about right. right, what exactly is the nature of the social contract, right? It is really just cover for the extension of a particular white nationalism imperative. So the question of black citizenship from the perspective of the founders of the society, if we embrace Charles Mills, which I do, there's no such thing as black citizenship because a citizen is, and now this is Sylvia Winter, and that's why I made the, the comment about the ontological definition that citizenship brings to the subject. Sylvia Winter would tell you that the citizen is invested in this thing called man, which is a European social political project. Mm-hmm. Right? And mm-hmm. citizen is an extension of that. So we have to ask very seriously, is this whole project amenable to bringing in those who do not fit into that category, that historical, that cultural, that racial category? So you're still leaving open the possibility that the the concept of citizenship might just be rotten to the core. (laughs) Um, Yes, that that is a very real possibility. And certainly what would support that are the ways in which the universal application of that category to particularly black people in the United States, but also to other populations of color, how it- And women. And women, yeah, definitely. It's a systematically <laughs> failed. Yeah. For me, I'm getting to the point, it's not merely a question of the mistakes of those in power, but this is, right, this is the feature. This is what it is. 
So then if as the way you phrased it earlier was it's neither a bug nor a feature, it is the program. And in that case, then it sounds less like you're saying the state has failed certain oppressed peoples, but the oppression of the people shows that the state is a failure. In other words, the notion of state is a failure. And, and the idealistic perspective of, of these populations is that the state is failing. Another way of thinking about it, you know, if you are someone who is in control of the state, if you are the population that the state has been really constructed for historically and is being maintained for contemporarily, then the state is doing its job. I think that is such a brilliant way to say it, that the perspective of the people who the state is failing is that the state is failing. And that is hugely important because it is not the case, I think, as you're rightly pointing out, that uniformly the perspective of the people that the state is failing is that the state is illegitimate. That is not the uniform perspective. The perspective is that it's failing, which means it can be corrected. Yeah. I guess so. I guess my language leads to that, that it can be corrected. But I, I wonder to what degree have we hit a wall in terms of the possibilities of that correction? Right. And that's why I said it's not the uniform perspective, because yeah. I think that my perspective would be at some point, I want to say the concept of the nation state might just be an illegitimate one now. And it seems like you are not totally opposed to entertaining that possibility. But the pragmatic politics right now, the dominant view is that the state is failing. Yeah. Right. And so that's why you take Derek Chauvin to jail. That's yeah, why you yeah. vote for Joe Biden in South Carolina in the Democratic primary. This is the pragmatic view. This is a broken, flawed vessel. We vote this way because we have little choice. This is the best of a, of a bad set of options. Yeah. Right. I mean, no one knows what white people do better than black people. I will lay money down that the black voters in the Democratic primary of South Carolina said, there's no way in hell these white people are going to vote for this black woman or for this yeah. old Jew or for yeah. this smart ass Harvard lawyer. But they will vote for the old white Uncle guy. Uncle Joe. They, they'll vote Uncle for Uncle Joe. Joe. And they were right. Yeah. yeah, they were right. So if you had the opportunity, if I gave you a 30-second spot on TV, aired in all 50 <laughs> states at prime time, or, or even better, a, a, a Twitter ad <laughs> aired in all 50 <laughs> states on prime time, and you could give three tips for African-American people to think about citizenship, like three citizenship tips, what would they be? That's a, that's a great question, too. Oh, you knocked me back on my That's heels. why they pay me the big bucks. That's why you pay the big bucks. <laughs> the first would be that if the American dream can be realized, the burden is not up on the backs of African Americans. It's not your responsibility. It's not your fault. It's almost like you're speaking to sort of like the victim of an abuse. It's not your fault. This is not done to you. A. B, I would say begin to think about the network that have maintained us outside of the mainstream and let's reinforce those networks. Let's go back and revive those networks. So that's the second point. And the third point would be that the experience of African peoples is not limited to this national context. That this is a global population, and we have to begin to return to the global vision of what is possible for black people. So, you know, basically I've gone back to a certain sort of pan-Africanism and black nationalism. Those are such refreshing tips, and it's so refreshing to not hear number one be vote. Although I'm sure that you think that black people should vote, but that seems like such a right. that seems like something that should be a conclusion and not a direction. Yeah, no, I, I actually had this argument with a friend uh, a few nights ago. I said, "Are you kidding? Black people by percentage, especially black women, voted higher rates than any other population in the society. But when you still remain the the minority population, 
we could get 100% voting. And ultimately, it's not going to turn Nebraska blue. Yeah. And that's why, at least in the book, I turn to questions of policy. Because there's some very real structural constraints that we have to take very seriously. So it's last call at the bar. And next week... Again? <laughs> really? At, I'm thirsty. After the, after the city-state collapses, bars will never have last call. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All this talk of revolution has made me thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, the bar has called last call. And so, Lee, you're in the hot seat next week. What are we going to be uh, talking with you about? Well, for regular listeners of Hotel Bar Sessions, this won't be any surprise, but we're going to talk about something technological. Next time, we are going to talk about digital afterlives. So thinking about the ways in which not only we are constantly in the process of constructing sort of datafied versions of ourselves, but also how little control we have over that information, and in particular, what happens to it after the meat space us dies. You know, there are predictions that within the next five or eight years, more than half of Facebook will be dead people. There's a proposal before the United Nations right now to guarantee that everyone has a digital identity by 2030, but no discussion at all about who that actually belongs to. I actually do think that we're probably going to be the first generation that has some control over saying when we die, but it's going to be when the digital us dies and not the meat space us. Although, who knows, we might have control over that. Anyway, we're going to talk about digital afterlives next time. We're probably going to also bring up some crazy stuff, like what if we could upload our minds to the cloud, or what if we transform into some other kind of chimera being transposed human. But it should be an interesting conversation, and I am looking forward to chopping it up with the both of you once again. And I noticed you didn't refer to digital citizenship. <laughs> digital comradeship. There you go, digital comradeship. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds great. I'm looking forward to this conversation about digital afterlives. Me too. All right. I'll catch you guys next time. Catch you. <laughs>